0: the storm is coming fast the day will soon be here when those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall that much is clear hello and welcome to physical attraction the tayot wowkie specials but so we'll be examining day, the end of the world the one apocalypse Can at a time stand your and survive while there's people crying Hello, and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, where we're finally getting towards the end of the Teot-Wauke specials that have occupied the first year of our run so far. It's been a long journey, and I thought that it would be good to do a few shows about, well, how can we save the world? We've talked all about these existential risks, and I think have thoroughly frightened us all with these terrifying visions of the apocalypse, so I guess it's only worth answering the question, what can we do to save ourselves? What should we do to save ourselves? Nick Bostrom, the philosopher who directs the Future of Humanity Institute, is concerned that we're not concerned enough about existential threats to humanity. There's a paper where he explained himself a few years ago, back when the Institute was first set up, that you can get for free on their website. And he talks about how there are fewer academic papers published about existential risk than there are about dung beetles. And it's true, perhaps, that there hasn't been enough academic focus so far on how to avoid the extinction of the whole human race. The argument that he's making is fairly simple, and it goes something like this. The difference between an event that kills 99% of humans and 100% of humans is a far bigger difference than the difference between an event that kills nobody and an event that kills 99% of humans. Even if only 1% of humanity survives, there's still a chance that civilization can be resurrected. Part of the logic here is that without humanity, there are no sentient beings that we know of to make value judgments about things. As in, we humans determine which things are good, and which are worthwhile, and which should be preserved. And so you're left with the sort of solipsistic conclusion that all the value in the universe ultimately flows from us, at least assuming that there are no other sentient beings. If no one is around to perceive things and see that they are bad or good, or have concepts of joy or suffering, then what does it matter what happens, ultimately? Just as money is only valuable because everyone believes that it's valuable, so in this system, things only have beauty or worth because we perceive them to be beautiful or worthwhile. I guess deep down, we probably do all buy enough into human exceptionalism to think that this is probably true. A universe completely devoid of life is a very different proposition to a universe that has it in, even though, to a completely dispassionate observer, you might say, that life is just one way of arranging matter. But on the surface, I do kind of feel sad about this human exceptionalism. It seems to imply that things have no meaning without sentient beings to give them meaning, and while it's hard not to come to that conclusion, because what is a word like meaning, where does that flow from, what is it, without humans, I think for a modest species it's an uncomfortable one. But the real point of Nick Bostrom's philosophical musings is that we should be far more concerned about the far future than we actually are. And of course this makes sense, because people are making decisions today with an eye to profit that can be achieved in our own lifetimes, that might mean, in a few centuries, London and New York are underwater. But on a deeper level than that, if the human experiment works, and we can exist as a species in the long term, then we can imagine that there might be billions upon billions of humans who live after us. Yet the world that they live in will depend on our decisions today. Whether they'll even exist at all might depend on our decisions today. If we have the potential for making a little extra money with some risky bio or nanotechnology developed today, but it could also destroy all of that future potential for humanity, a philosopher like Bostrom would argue that altruism should extend towards humans in the far future, and that we should value that future potential more than we already do. They're saying implicitly that what we do is discount the value of human lives in the future. And I think to an extent you almost have to do that to an extent to make decisions. Because otherwise, if you try and value the infinite number of possible human lives in the future, which you can't quantify in any way in the same way as you value lives today, it's difficult to do that you're accounting properly, I think. But even so, regardless of whether you go full Bostrom and try to assign a value to all human civilization that's infinite, and thus make this argument that a handful of humans surviving is infinitely better than none surviving at all, and should be achieved at any cost, even if you don't buy that, you can probably believe that human civilization and the species has some value. Maybe a tiny bit of value, if we get things right. So the first and most noticeable pattern you'll probably see in my top 10 is the fact that the worst and the deadliest catastrophes are all man-made. There are some natural phenomena out there that do have the potential to wipe us all out, but a lot of the deadlier threats, the existential threats, are within our hands, at least in part. The natural catastrophes, the volcanoes, the earthquakes, are often localised in scope to specific areas. Even a naturally evolving supervirus or pandemic illness although it has the potential to badly disrupt or even end society as we know it, is unlikely to be as effective at wiping us all out as humans can be. After all, if it was possible, it would have already happened. The threats from outer space, broadly, are either highly unlikely like supernovae, or possibly preventable with new technology in the case of asteroid strikes. Far bigger threats to civilization are posed by nuclear weapons, biotechnology, or nanotechnology running rampant. The superintelligent AI we might create and our own rapacious desires causing us to render the planet uninhabitable, whether by using up all of its natural resources or triggering some other kind of ecological collapse and catastrophe. Depending on your level of misanthropy, the idea that our future and the potential for civilization is in our hands might fill you with optimism. After all, aren't we one of the first species on the planet that has established such incredible control, or maybe dominance is a better word, over its environment and its surroundings? We have less to fear from the blind hand of tragic fate or from imagined gods that control the weather and famines than any previous civilization. What other species can say that the main threat to its survival is self-inflicted? For most species, the main threat to their survival is us. Yet it's a double-edged sword. The increasing complexity of our society, which allows us to head off these threats and control our environment and support 7 billion people, has led to this incredible interconnected system. But any engineer will tell you the more moving parts you have, the more potential there is for something to go wrong. And in these complex systems, like the ones that we all rely on, that supply our food and products, chaos theory can begin to dominate. In the sense that seemingly small actions in one part of the system have the power to cascade in unforeseen ways when all of the various stars align. And the more components there are in the system, the more easily something like this could happen the dynamics can get very wild and very difficult to predict. I'll give you an example via Nick Bostrom. Quote, It could turn out, for example, that attaining certain technological capabilities before attaining sufficient insight and coordination invariably spells doom for a civilization. One can readily imagine a class of existential catastrophe scenarios in which some technology is discovered that puts immense destructive power into the hands of a large number of individuals. If there is no effective defence against this destructive power, and no way to prevent individuals from having access to it, then civilization cannot last, since in a sufficiently large population there are bound to be some individuals who will use any destructive power available to them. The discovery of the atomic bomb could have turned out like this, except for the fortunate fact that the construction of nuclear weapons requires a special ingredient, weapons grade fissile material, that is rare and expensive to manufacture. Even so, if we continually sample from the urn of possible technological discoveries before implementing effective means of global coordination, surveillance, and even maybe restriction of potentially hazardous information, then we risk eventually drawing a black ball, an easy-to-make intervention that causes extremely widespread harm, and against which effective defence is infeasible. End quote. So this idea that if you get smart before you get wise, and attain certain technological abilities before you find out all of the kinks in your civilization, you destroy yourselves. This is one of the solutions people came up with for the Fermi paradox of why we don't see a universe apparently teeming with alien life, and the one that Fermi himself was most concerned about. There are, of course, others. So this is the idea I want to explore, to summarize it in a succinct way. Can the global village deal with all of its global village idiots? And I think it's a theme we've come back to time and time again, the idea that the development of our technology is outstripping our morality and our progress as a society. And it seems obvious to me that there are only a few ways we can go as a civilization in the long run. Either we destroy ourselves or partially destroy ourselves and future generations curse us for our stupidity, or we transcend what we are today and fail to destroy ourselves, and future generations will pity us for our stupidity. Just think about the number of things that people used to do, that seem idiotic or hopelessly misguided to us today. The idea, for example, that people used to routinely beat their children, and that this was considered good parenting, is something that now a lot of people find deeply depressing. Just as we don't know which aspects of our culture will survive into the future and be remembered, so we can't be sure which aspects will be condemned as hopelessly barbaric. But that is for future historians, and I pity them, because they'll have to scroll through a hell of a lot of Twitter to get to the bottom of what went on. And speaking of Twitter... Social media is really the technology that has become invisible in this decade, and I think we're still shaking out the incredible ramifications that it has for society. Technology is definitely in the driving seat, and people are developing it before we have any clue what it will do to our governments, to our cultures, to our societies. And this is why I think most of our fear is technological fear, techno-fear. But the question for us is simple. How can we realistically avert catastrophe, or at the very least mitigate catastrophe? An interesting question is what should we do? So we've pointed out before that our systems aren't fantastic at dealing with the question of some of these existential risks. There are whole professions, like being an actuary, that are essentially dedicated to calculating risk, trying to work out how likely it is that bad things will happen, as in the case of life insurance. But our governments aren't very good at defining an appropriate expenditure, Before you even get into whether you should weigh lives in the future more heavily, and assuming you even manage to quantify the risk, what costs do you take with respect to which risks? It's almost like a reverse lottery problem. Plenty of people are happy to spend £1 for a a one-in-a-million chance of winning a large sum of money, but how many people would spend £10 to prevent a a one-in-a-million chance of disaster? You might think that it's obvious that we should do whatever's in our power to prevent a threat, that could cause a massive loss of life. After all, even if you insist on measuring everything in economic terms, the kind of event that would kill tens of millions of people would probably cost the economy trillions of dollars as well. So surely it would be worth spending a billion, as an insurance policy, against this kind of event? Well, if you think about it, we're making these decisions all the time. I'm a lowly student, I cannot afford to build a thermonuclear bunker under my house. Despite spending weeks researching the apocalypse, I've taken no steps to prevent it from affecting me. I don't even have one of those cheap face masks that supposedly stops you from contracting diseases. But if I was an incredibly rich billionaire, then I might look into it. One of the ways of looking at how governments are assessing the risk is working out a simple ratio of the cost of their prevention versus the damage that would be done if the prevention failed. If you spend a million pounds preventing an event that could do a billion pounds worth of damage, then you're sort of pegging the probability of that event at occurring at roughly one in a thousand but obviously that doesn't work for everything because some phenomena can't be prevented at all so we wisely don't invest in them after all if we're unlucky enough to be caught by a gamma ray burst it's curtains regardless of what we do and some phenomena can probably be prevented by a smaller expenditure than the probability divided by the damages so it's not perfectly reliable to see how our elected officials are assessing the risks of these various catastrophes taking place and of course in all of this you run into this cognitive bias where we're more prepared to pay more to prevent specific disasters. It's been shown in study after study, the more specific you are about the calamity, the more people will pay in insurance to prevent it, even if the insurance guards against fewer risks and is worth less. So for our purposes, maybe people are far willing to spend an awful lot more than they should for an asteroid shield, because they can imagine this risk, because it's been in movies, even if the probability is vanishingly small. And less for research into algorithmic safety, because these scenarios are less well understood. So in this sense, what we've been doing here, which is painting vivid scenarios of terror about what might happen in the future, we're making the risk specific, and it actually helps us to spend more to prevent it. Alternatively, though, you can argue that we might be better off not assuming too much about the nature of the threat, and just being more prepared for catastrophe and systemic failure. I mean, what would we all do in our individual lives if the food stopped showing up at the supermarkets? what would the government do if any one of these catastrophes occurred and disrupted the normal functioning of society? You need a sort of general readiness for this kind of thing, because you don't know what will happen. So let's look at some of these specific risks. The United States and Russia still have 7,000 nuclear warheads each. Arguably they could get by with a few hundred, like China does. And with fewer operating warheads, so many of the risks are also reduced. Fewer to get lost, fewer to steal, fewer to be on high alert... Smaller stockpiles would even cost less money to maintain. As I'm sure Stephen Schwartz, who we interviewed, would agree, we can decrease the risk of catastrophe in the nuclear field for negative money. Would tighter restrictions on biotech research into AI safety or governments training and hiring cybersecurity experts really cost that much compared to the potential costs? There are probably a few hundred people worldwide working on AI safety, and the whole thing is probably funded to the tune of millions of dollars, not billions. It's hard to argue that in an era when a single movie can take two billion dollars at the box office, we shouldn't be spending at least that amount on a risk that could potentially destroy the whole human race. Even if you assess that the probability of it actually taking place is fairly low. In the UK, the government announced an extra 1.9 billion in spending on cybersecurity. A good start. Cybercrime already costs our economy 34 billion a year, and a lot of this is really just the cyber equivalent of theft and arson. Compare this to an actual all-out war, or what could be achieved by a lot of highly motivated and destructive hackers, and you can again argue that it's it's not even enough. Of course, with any kind of risk prevention strategy, if it works well, people will decide that it's unnecessary. Attribution is very difficult. Is it the fact that there have been fewer pandemics because of UN and government spending on the issue, or are they less linked than you might think? Is it more linked to economic development in the countries? a general increase in hygiene that has nothing to do with the UN and government, but just people getting richer and changing in priorities, or a spread of information that's just naturally diffused out from different medical groups. These kind of questions are always going to dog people who try to deal with existential risk. And as in all economic questions, you have to weigh up the opportunity costs. What if tighter restrictions on biotech prevent life-saving treatments from being discovered? I've already argued that to avoid the Malthusian catastrophe, everyone running out of food, catching up with us, we may well need GM crops, so we can't restrict biotech too much. What if fears about artificial intelligence or nanotechnology cause us to regulate too harshly and squash economic development that everyone depends on? This is, of course, the same argument that's applied to lots of green environmentalist policies by right-wing people. And it's true that in developing these policies, we have to strike a balance between the positive effects and the negative ones. Environmental issues hold a particular problem when you analyse them, as we relentlessly do for everything, through this economic lens. There's an active debate raging about whether you can put a price on nature and on ecosystems. Some people think that doing so is sacrilege. George Monbiot says that natural wealth and human-made capital are neither compatible nor interchangeable. If the soil is washed off the land, we cannot grow crops on a bed of financial derivatives. Price represents an expectation of payment in accordance with market rates. In pricing a river, a landscape, or an ecosystem, either you are lining it up for sale, in which case the exercise is sinister, or you are not, in which case it is meaningless. Others argue that humans need some metric to compare the value of, say, cutting down a forest and turning it into paper, versus the value of keeping it standing. They would say that you have to work within the paradigms of society that exist at the moment, and everyone thinks about money as their main assessment of value, the first figure that you often go to when you try to explain the size of a problem, as I've already done several times in this script. And so they would argue that if you don't put a value on nature, the free market which currently dominates in most things will value it at zero. A similar problem arises when it comes to climate change. What value does it have now if we can make things more livable and comfortable for people in 2100? Of course, it's not quite like that, although our predictions go up to 2100 things just get progressively worse up till then. Given that the greenhouse gases and the fossil fuels we burn today will make the environment less stable, and the resources scarcer, for thousands of years, what is that worth for the future generations? Use of fossil fuels could allow economies to grow more quickly. Economic growth, while not perfectly linked to things like healthcare, does reduce death rates due to disease, infant mortality rates, all kinds of things. So some people would argue that the best course of action is to rely on future technologies that will allow us to adapt to climate change or even reverse it. Such a course of action, which depends on things that haven't happened yet, is obviously very risky. It's another risk to evaluate. And of course, the people who like these utopian techno-fixes may just be using them as their excuse for relative inaction in the near term. Here again, it depends on how much you buy into Bostrom's argument about weighting future populations. He was interviewed and said, If you have that moral point of view that future generations matter in proportion to the number of people who are alive, then you get this very stark implication that existential risk mitigation has a much higher utility than pretty much anything else you could do. There are so many people who could come into the existence, billions and billions of times more people in billions of solar systems. Therefore, even a very small reduction in the probability of realising this enormous good will tend to outweigh even immense benefits like eliminating poverty or curing malaria which would be tremendous under ordinary standards. But if you take this to the moral extreme, there's no limit to what you might permit. If you think that, say, AI is the biggest threat and we're not ready to program it well or responsibly yet, then why not argue that everyone currently working on AI or similar should be stopped? This is an argument for addressing climate change too. The effects will be with us for thousands of years, sea level rise will only really start to get bad after a few centuries, and therefore billions of future people will be impacted by the decisions we make today. How well does this argument fly, and how much do you believe it? The truth is that humans don't all act like perfect utilitarians. We don't all think, well, logically, if you count human lives at such and such a rate, according to this formula, the best thing I can do in this situation is to prevent global catastrophe. What we find to be good is often very different to what we'd like to think it is, which is all complicating decision-making. You see these kind of trade-offs all the time. An example that comes up a lot in climate change is air pollution. In the form of aerosols, it currently cools the Earth to between 0.3 and 1.1 degrees Celsius. That same air pollution, which comes from burning coal, also results in the premature deaths of millions of people around the world. If all you care about is global mean temperature, and consequently the sea level rise that we're committed to, you'd probably make fewer efforts to get rid of that pollution, but of course this isn't all that we care about. And I think given how terrible the pollution problem is, especially in places like China and India, anyone who suggested that we should leave it in place for climate reasons is going to be laughed out of the room. And what about the last great mass extinction, the one caused by human beings? What is the market value of a unique species? What is the utilitarian value to us? Is it set higher for cute animals like pandas and lower for abundant ugly species like beetles? You often hear a lot that people say maybe X, Y, or Z species will have the genetic information that will lead to some magical cure for cancer or something along these lines, in which case you have to ask yourself, if if that's the metric by which you're measuring the value of a species, the sort of evolutionary information that that species contains, then once you have the DNA, does it matter if any individuals survive? It seems, at present, to our shame that we don't value the existential risks to other species at a particularly high level, even Mm. though, of course, in principle, many millions of them could exist in the future as well. And this is why relentless economics always needs to be tempered by some morality, because maximising the stock market does not necessarily maximise all of the things that we value in the world. And Bostrom talks about other kinds of apocalypse as well. Not necessarily a cataclysm that destroys humanity, or sets civilization back by a hundred years, but instead a flawed realization. The human race reaches technological maturity, but in a way that's far from ideal. So, a classic example of this would be an Earth that's environmentally destroyed or difficult to live in, or a planet that's governed by a repressive totalitarian state. It may well be that there is a big gap between surviving the 21st century and developing interstellar travel, in which case this environmental degradation is a serious issue. I'm reminded of so many of the sci-fi dystopias I read growing up. The Earth has been ecologically shattered, the poor people remaining there are clinging to a vastly overpopulated wasteland, and for colonists struggling to survive on the inhospitable planets of our outer solar system, life is hardly any better. On the Hugo's There podcast, I talked about Frederick Pohl's Gateway, which was an amazing book that everyone should read. Everyone remaining on Earth lives in hope of winning the lottery, because that's enough to get them a one-way ticket to Venus. And there, on Venus, there are these alien ships that were left behind by a super-advanced race called the Hechi. These ships can be flown, but only to a set of predestined coordinates. So it's like a vast space-bound game of Russian roulette. The explorers might find something that makes them very wealthy, Or they might just end up being killed and running out of food on a journey to nowhere. Given the terrible state the Earth is in, for most of them, this turns out to be a decent option. So how can we avoid this? How can we avoid our descendants being trapped on an increasingly uninhabitable planet? So one of the theories that's often suggested is this idea of a global government. Obviously the formation of the UN, which is the closest thing we have to a world authority at the moment, has perhaps laid some of the framework for this and a big part of the impetus for forming it was to deal with the threat from nuclear weapons and ensure non-proliferation. Of course, the world had just seen in two disastrous wars the dangers of having large individual nation-states floating around. In fact, immediately after the Second World War, there was widespread public support for the idea of a global government that would take control of nuclear weapons, and take control of part of the militaries of the major nations, to prevent future conflicts from arising talked about this more in the nuclear weapons episodes, and when we come onto fusion, I think we'll talk about it even more. And of course, one of the most popular things that the UN currently does, in the form of arms like UNICEF and the World Health Organization, is attempt to prevent things like pandemics that affect all countries from breaking out. The advantages of some sort of global government would be that we could unilaterally address the issues that face us, the kind which affect the whole planet. We could come up with a coherent scheme that everyone's involved with, dealing with climate change, or asteroid strikes, or diseases that could become global pandemics. We could consistently enforce laws about biotechnology and nanotechnology across all jurisdictions, rather than having the hodgepodge of rules that we have at the moment. For example, having multiple nation-states means that some nations are incentivized to have more lax rules about what can and can't be done in biotechnology. You can make money by being the most lax people out there. For example, there was a lady, uh, BioViva CEO Liz Parrish, who wanted to undergo an experimental procedure to have her telomeres lengthened. Telomeres are little loops of DNA that act like the caps on the end of each chromosome, and as we age, they get shorter. Now, it's unclear at the moment whether you can actually live longer or somehow rejuvenate your cells by stretching them again. Correlation, after all, is not always causation. But nevertheless, that's what she wanted to do, lengthen these telomeres. The FDA in the US had not approved of the experiment, so she just went to Colombia. Of course, it doesn't even have to necessarily be a question of different laws in different countries, giving some countries an economic incentive for biotourism or whatever. Even just differences to enforcement can be a problem. If in the future it becomes possible for many, many actors to illegally create or program bioweapons or nanorobots or some other technology, even just having a state that's anarchy, where the laws can't be enforced properly, could be a threat to the entire world if people who are malicious go there. When you think about scientific scenarios in science fiction in the future, you find that if you're in a utopian scenario, the idea of countries has very often been done away with, because I think we think that as long as there's independent nation states that are rivals and competing in some way and denying each other benefits and so on, then there will be a war at some point and that war will be terrible and devastating. So you normally have individual planets forming their own individual civilizations that aren't subdivided into lots of different countries. If you believe that a global government would also mean an end to war, as many of the utopians who first came up with the idea did, then many of the ideas that arise from conflict and weaponry are severely reduced. If you take the really, really long view, at least to me, it seems that eventually nation-states will seem a little anachronistic. I mean, they're founded based around things like a common culture, language, and shared heritage, but these are things that can change over time, and they do become more homogenous the more we communicate to each other. If technology approves to the point where we have babelfishes, live, accurate, computer-based translation that can work in real time and allow people to communicate with each other across different languages with ease, something that's always on and in your ear, then a massive barrier will come down. Already, for better or worse, a lot of the world's culture is becoming homogenised, at least among the wealthy. The internet has provided this instant bridge between nations. The majority of my listeners aren't from the UK, which wouldn't be the case if I adopted the old style of an apocalyptic preacher who sets up a cardboard box in the street and stands on it raving and ranting, rather than a podcast, which I guess is the modern version of the same thing. And until relatively recently there was a continuous trend towards greater political union and multinational cooperation. We're now in something of a backlash, but who knows how long that tide will recede for. But people are rightly suspicious of a global government, which is why we don't have one yet. For a start, a lot of people have a lot of self-interested reasons to be suspicious. If everyone is genuinely going to be equally enfranchised if you try and make this a democracy somehow, but everyone gets an equal say in the direction of society and the world in general, For a lot of people, that means that their share of the pie, their share of the power, is going to go down by a hell of a lot. If power is a zero-sum game, then the idea that the votes of, say, a wealthy New York elite type and a farmer in Bangladesh will be worth the same, it's going to seem to the New York elite type that they're losing out, and they will. If you have a global government, what do you do about the fact that the resources people value aren't equally allocated? In the modern era, some countries are disproportionately wealthy because they have massive reserves of oil. Perhaps in the future, those countries close to the equator that benefit from a lot of sunshine for solar power or have big deserts, will be similarly more valuable than the cold and bleak countries of northern Europe. Or maybe, as seems likely, things will swing towards a balance where the countries that have the largest populations or produce the most food will become the economic powerhouses. But people are going to feel like they have the same rights to benefit from their own country's resources as they did in the past, as long as there's still individual governments and borders and things like this. Even then, you'll still feel that this oil is geographically close to me, and I work on extracting it, and therefore I should be the one who gets the economic benefit from that. And inequality between nations is likely to continue for a very long time, for at least as long as it can be sustained by the people who benefit from it. While this is the case, it's perhaps inevitable that a global government can't be a truly global government. And to give the anti-globalists some credit, which I think they're due at this point, there is a genuine and deep concern that a global government could descend into a totalitarian state, especially if people try to establish it before the world population is really ready for the idea. These circumstances, in a world with advanced technology, the kind we're talking about, could be completely nightmarish. Nick Bostrom again talks about a totalitarian state as an example of one of his flawed realisations, another threat for a global catastrophic risk. After all, in his definition, a catastrophic risk involves the deaths of tens of millions of people, and this has occurred under the totalitarian governments of Mao, Stalin and Hitler in the 20th century. A totalitarian global government could kill so many more. The idea of a global government that coordinates the response to apocalyptic threats and keeps the peace or global cooperation that does the same, is wonderful, in principle, and maybe even necessary. But the devil, as always, is in the detail. Let's be provocative for a minute. As I write this, there's an awful lot of talk about the US embassy that's just moved to Jerusalem. As I discussed in the episodes with Phil Torres, for some people, by no means all, but for some people, a key reason to support Israel, and the move of the embassy, is due to biblical prophecy. For example, a Pew Research poll suggested that 51% of evangelical Christians listed it as a reason, 12% thought it was the most important reason. So in a tangible way, even if it's hard to quantify, people's beliefs about the end of the world are currently influencing the policy of governments. Some number of these people probably do expect the rapture to arrive in their lifetimes. Now, before I go any further, I should point out that the example I'm about to give is outside mainstream theology. And there are quotes in the Bible that basically say, no one knows the time of the apocalypse, and anyone who thinks they do is lying. And many religions have apocalyptic sects. I'm just using this example because it's been in the news. But it's clear that in any society, some number of people, even if it's small, view the end of the world as a good thing. They have these millenarian beliefs that we've talked about, that all of the bad things in the world will be destroyed and replaced by a paradise in some way or another. People tend to believe this a lot. Aum Shinrikyo believed it, the communists believed it, and certain religious sects also believe it. And they believe that something is to be encouraged, even hastened, because it will lead to this second coming, the paradise, the redemption, the fulfilment of prophecy, and all that kind of thing. Imagine if you were in Bostrom's world, where new technologies allow destructive power to be distributed in the same way information has become distributed via the internet. And now these people, who believe that Armageddon should be sped up, have access to the means to inflict untold horror on civilization. How do you, as a global government, react to that? Keeping track of every group of people who might possibly seek to cause untold violence, carnage and destruction is one thing. That's what we expect governments to do now. But you could just as easily imagine a global government saying, as technology means that more and more groups can be dangerous, that the risk is just too great. We cannot allow people to have these irrational beliefs that the apocalypse might be a good thing. Because anyone who believes that might just engineer their nanobots to trigger it. Isn't it almost the definition of religion that you have a different set of beliefs about what's valuable? You have some faith that trumps all of the things that exist on the planet as it is. Just in the same way that Bostrom and others might argue that future generations should be valued above all else, many people believe that there's an eternity beyond this one that outweighs everything else in this world. And this belief, can often motivate people to be kind and self-sacrificing in their lives, because they think that there's a greater reward waiting, or because they have higher levels of priority than material gain. But we should always remember that it can also motivate them to blow themselves up when it's corrupted, when it's not in the form that people would like it to be. So could a world where people are far more empowered to wreak havoc allow these belief systems, where things are far more important than, say, human life continue to exist? but stopping people from holding beliefs is the worst kind of totalitarianism and a terrible risk in itself. We've already talked about the various ways these millenarian beliefs come from. Not just religions, Marxism, and even some kind of radical environmentalist thought have similar overtones. And there are always people who will be, you know, mentally ill, unwell. We see all the time people who have destructive impulses, and perhaps in the future they might not be limited to their local area. They might have more power to do bad things if they wanted to. So what do you do about these people, the ones who might destroy the world? Because, after all, doesn't utopia almost require certain points of view to vanish, a certain uniformity of belief about what good is? And in that sense, we're back to this problem of superintelligent AI, what to optimise, what to programme the machines to do on our behalf if we can even control them. Don't most people's visions of utopia look more or less like the world where everyone thinks like they do? Perhaps with a little variation thrown in to keep it interesting? I'm genuinely curious, do you agree? What's your vision of utopia? Talk to us. Ensuring that liberal democracy is maintained in individual nation-states has proved difficult enough. The nightmare of maintaining it across the whole world, with so many different ideologies, issues and concerns, is even worse. Would a global parliament be able to get anything done, or would they just bicker and fight until people started to think the whole thing was a bad mistake? The problem with totalitarianism as a risk, in a future scenario, is that these unprecedented technologies would also probably make it possible to have new and more effective kinds of totalitarianism. Even the relatively unintelligent AI algorithms we have today allow for a surveillance state that Stalin could only have dreamed of. It could prove easy perhaps to set up a totalitarian state that won't collapse that will prove very difficult to overthrow one that's even semi or fully automated imagine a scenario where technology exists that allows us to work out what people are thinking it's not that ridiculous we've already got studies that can indicate vague ideas about whether someone's happy or sad what their emotional state is like and even you know things like individually And already people can use just this very basic idea of MRI scanning to control computer cursors and things along these lines. Imagine what kind of tool that would be for an authoritarian dictator. Humanity might survive under such circumstances, but it would be a dismal prospect for us, not one that we'd want. There are different ways to think about totalitarianism as a threat. Brian Kaplan, who wrote in Bostrom's book on existential risks, argues that a totalitarian regime can be what you'd call a threat multiplier for other existential risks. If the world is run by one person, or a small group, we're subject to their idiosyncrasies. Stalin didn't believe that Hitler would invade, and so his rule was threatened by failing to prepare properly. Add to the fact that in totalitarian regimes, people can be reluctant to challenge the view of the great leader, and this can make the whole system less prepared for other kinds of catastrophe. Kaplan says, quote, to call attention to looming disasters verges on dissent, and dissent is dangerously close to disloyalty. For the ruling party, this may be a fair trade greater control versus less insulation from the disasters. For global catastrophic risks, we must add the direct cost of totalitarianism to the indirect cost of exacerbating other risks. And of course, totalitarian regimes may well be able to last longer in the future. Part of this question relies on how regimes have collapsed in the past. Kaplan points out that they often struggle with succession crises. Mao, for example, was succeeded by Deng Xiaoping, who relaxed the totalitarianism somewhat, and a similar thing happened with Stalin, who was replaced by people who wanted to move away from his legacy. He also notes that totalitarian regimes are destabilised by non-totalitarian neighbours. It's a bind. Either nations choose to completely isolate themselves, like North Korea, such that very few of the population have too good an idea about what's going on in the outside world. If you do that, then you lag economically, militarily, technologically behind everyone else. Or you allow your nation to trade and communicate, but that risks the spread of dangerous ideas. For this reason, a global totalitarianism, which we've never seen, could be far more stable. There's no alternative to look at. Alternatively, like in 1984, you could have a very small group of totalitarian states, That keep power by demonizing and skirmishing with each other. In that I think they were called Eurasia, East Asia, and Oceania, the three big totalitarian states that were constantly at war with each other. There's still no free alternative. And of course, if the regime can't be conquered from without, like Hitler's Germany was, one major way that dictatorships fall is gone. In such a situation, a global totalitarianism, there are all kinds of consequences. Scientific and economic development is often motivated by competition with others. That's why the US sent humans to the moon, after all. But in a global dictatorship, not only is there no one to compete with, but you might argue that technological progress might actively challenge the ruling group. Kaplan put it thus, The rule of thumb, avoid all change, is easier to apply than the rule, avoid all change that might in the long run make the regime less likely to stay in power. So there's an incentive to stop people from developing technology that won't enforce the regime. And yet the technology that might be developed opens the doors to new kinds of totalitarianism, like the soft totalitarianism of Brave New World. Instead of executing and torturing dissidents, everyone is just given drugs to keep them docile and obedient. Uprisings or power struggles within the class of elite that forms in a totalitarian government are often the cause of its downfall, again looking at the USSR. But could a totalitarian state in the future genetically engineer its party members to be unquestioningly loyal? Could it scan their brains to determine whether they harbored thoughts of dissent? Could the succession crisis be eliminated by making the supreme leader immortal in some way? There are all kinds of horrible scenarios you can concoct to yourself. If you think that a global totalitarianism is possible, what does it do for the human species? Well, it exacerbates some risks while dampening others. If such a regime is run by humans, and they think that a superintelligent AI or developments in biotech or nanotech could be a threat to them, then they might ban the research, even in the guise of keeping us all safe. If you had a surveillance state with no qualms about killing people who did things wrong, they might even be able to enforce these bans better than a democracy where everyone consents to things. This arguably reduces some of the existential risks that we've talked about, at the cost for a far more dismal future for everyone. However, if there are any dissenters who do get their hands on the technology, then they would be far more motivated to overthrow an evil dictatorship, rather than a benign one. On the other hand, if scientific development is stunted by a totalitarianism, then maybe we never become an interstellar species, or this is delayed until something else manages to wipe us out. And in this case, Bostrom's whole future lives argument, where becoming an interstellar species is the goal and you end up with billions of humans everywhere, is ruined because, earth is nipped in the bud by this totalitarianism that's inward-looking and isolated and doesn't try and expand anywhere. So there is obviously a clear and deep balancing act that we must try to perform. We need to find some way of globally coordinating the response to catastrophic risks, especially if technology evolves in such a way that these risks can come from a greater number of actors. But we also have to avoid the risk of being so overbearing that technological progress is destroyed. And we have to avoid being so paranoid about the risks that we impinge on people's freedom to an unacceptable extent. The only trouble is, I imagine, everyone is going to disagree about where those lines should be drawn. And even a good democratic global government, if it has term limits, could potentially suffer from the same problems that our governments do today. Such a government would probably do better on climate change, given that part of the reason for inertia is that the countries that burn the most fossil fuels actually suffer the least from climate change's effects. But if addressing a risk involves a big expenditure now but won't improve things measurably for 10 or 20 years or perhaps involves spending a lot of money or going through a lot of regulations and people can't necessarily attribute the risk that's avoided to the actions by the government then politicians of all stripes are less inclined to vote for that over something that might have a tangible impact before the politician's next election cycle comes up. And on a broader scale the finite nature of human lives has an impact on all of these things. I remember when I was talking to about all of these apocalyptic scenarios with my brother and I mentioned, for example, that limitless economic growth can't continue as it has done forever due to a very simple physical fact. Eventually, if it does, our energy consumption would cause the seas to boil. This isn't because of global warming. It's literally the heat that is produced by producing ever more energy. So either you need some future where economic growth decouples from the use of energy which seems fairly unlikely, or you conclude that economic growth can't continue forever. This doesn't necessarily mean that society is doomed, but it should be clear to everyone that an endlessly growing energy consumption on a finite world is eventually not sustainable. See the online essay, Exponential Economist vs. Logistic Physicist. He thought about it for a second, and then he said, well, as long as it lasts the next 80 years, I'm fine with that. So what do we do about the problems that are transgenerational? Who is going to invest in interstellar space travel if the project might take hundreds of years to yield any economic or political benefits, and the investors know that they won't live to benefit from it? Of course, there are ways that the technologies of the future could evolve that might negate some of these issues. For example, if we had AI that people trusted with long-term decision-making, it might be better at long-term planning, or else if human lifespans become extended, people, or at least rich people, might start to worry about the consequences a 100 years down the road. Even if something like cryogenics, if it works, could make people think about long-term investments and broaden people's horizons a little bit. But the point, obviously, is that a global government is not necessarily the slam-dunk silver bullet to all of the problems that we face, even though, in a lot of cases, a coordinated response is necessary. And we're really talking about something that's been incredibly impractical to establish, and often those who have tried to establish it have used an awful lot of violence. People are unlikely to consent to be governed by a global government unless they can be reassured that their values and interests won't be compromised, or until our values and interests all become very, very similar. And it's not necessarily the kind of thing that you can force, or perhaps even the kind of world that you'd want to live in. And there is, of course, a very obvious and fundamental tension here. If what you're worried about is technologies that will distribute destructive power to a very large number of people, and your solution is to have a global government where their main purpose is to maintain law and order and ensure that the technologies are well regulated, then they're going to want to take more power. They're going to want to take more control over the world population, for the good of preventing the destruction of the species, of course, rather than having a nice liberal democracy where the purpose of government, at least in theory, is to reflect the will of the voters. Your global government is going to have a lot of fierce competition in this scenario, The possibility for devastating rebellions and revolutions, or terrorist attacks against the state. It's very difficult to see how this fails to descend into totalitarianism. But it can also be difficult to see how to deal with this kind of future without it. We'll explore more about what to do when you're faced with the apocalypse in the next episode in this mini-series. Until then, thanks for listening to Physical Attraction. Remember that we now have a sister podcast, Autocracy Now, because I am crazy, and I have decided to do two at the same time. Autocracy Now is currently talking about, oh, totalitarianism with the life of Stalin. We've got it to episode three. You can subscribe to that wherever you're listening to this or by visiting their website at www.autocracynow.libsyn.com. You can visit our website at www.physicspodcast.com. And there, there's a contact form where you can tell me anything you like. Comments, questions, concerns, I'd love to hear from all of you. Go straight to my email so I do read them all in the end. Uh, You can also review us on iTunes, you can follow us on Twitter, at PhysicsPod, you can visit the Facebook page, Physical Attraction, and you know, the thing that i like people to do the most is just tell their friends about this show, if they've enjoyed it, if something has been thought-provoking or something's made them mad. Discussing the show with others and spreading the word to people you know who like podcasts is really an invaluable service that you can do if you like what we're doing here. So, until next time, stay safe. You better make some preparations, there's no time for hesitations, compile a list of tips. Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics.